to the Heart Podcast. Over the last 35 years, there has been dramatic progress in the technology and applicability of percutaneous techniques to treat obstructive coronary heart disease. PCI has a considerable evidence base and it is firmly established as the most common procedure used in the invasive treatment of patients with CHD in the UK. This new set of guidelines published in Heart specifically looks at issues around PCI and the practice in the UK and sets out a recommended template to ensure optimal delivery of patient care. In this podcast, Dr. Alistair Lindsay, social media editor of Heart, speaks to Professor Adrian Banning of the John Radcliffe Hospital at the University of Oxford and one of the authors of these guidelines to talk about the headline messages. Over to you, Alistair. And I'm delighted to see that the first author of the guidelines, Professor Adrian Banning, joins me on the line now. Adrian, hello. Good morning. Well, thank you very much for submitting the guidelines to HEART, which, uh, of course, are of enormous relevance because, as you point out at the beginning, uh, PCI really has changed a lot over the last 10 years since the last set of guidelines came out, hasn't it? It's been a dramatic change, hasn't there? We've seen a real transformation in PCI. If we go back 10 years, most procedures were done from the femoral approach. Primary angioplasty was infrequent. And the range of stents that we have, we had bare metal stents then. Obviously, we have drug-eluting stents now. And it's really a tribute to the pace of change that we've seen in intervention that these new guidelines are so dramatically needed and so perhaps overdue because now with drug-eluting stents, radial approach and primary angioplasty, our cath labs are really completely transformed to the position we were in 10 years ago. Absolutely. And of course, the other thing that's come along is structural intervention. But you do point out specifically that's not something you, you intend to cover at this stage. I think that's right. And the pace of change in structural is, is enormous. And yeah. these guidelines take quite a lot of time to get together. And so we felt that we should take this in bite-sized chunks. I think TAVI, the management of aortic stenosis and the network approach to the management of aortic stenosis is probably our next objective for BSIS. And uh, we look forward to getting that process initiated. Okay, speaking of volume, one of the main points you make in your recommendations are about operator but also centre volumes. And you were now recommending a minimum of 400 cases per year. So that hasn't changed. What we've done is we've looked at our current practice. We've got data from the CCAD uh, website, and we've looked at whether the current practice that we have is safe. And we're confident that these current guidelines provide a safe structure to go forward. And so as a consequence, we haven't changed the minimal number either for operators or for sites. What we have done is recognize that pressure wire and intravascular ultrasound require similar skills to intervention. And so the separate category of diagnostic interventional procedure has been added. And some of those procedures can be added to the minimum requirements for operators going forward. So we have tried to update and recognize changes in technology within the current guideline. But broadly, the center volume minimum numbers remain the same. Okay. And does that apply also for STEMI, Adrian, where the guidelines are now suggesting 100 cases per year with a minimum of six interventionalists on the rotor? There were no STEMI guidelines before, so this is a new recommendation. I think the other thing which I would highlight is the requirement for STEMI operators to be working within the STEMI site on an elective basis as well. You know, this the treatment of patients with acute myocardial infarction is a team game, and that's how we get the best outcomes. And so what we want to avoid is having situations where people aren't familiar with the environment and familiar with the team. So I think there are some new recommendations there that we feel are appropriate with regard to looking after the sickest patients that we care for. 
Absolutely. And with that in mind, I thought there were two things that really stood out for me with that uh, safety goal in mind. MDT meetings are stressed and also the use of the WHO patient safety checklist. And I thought that was really interesting. We've done a little bit of work in our hospital and certainly noticed that that's made a big difference along with team briefings in the morning. I think that's right. I think to a certain extent that illustrates what I'd like to think is a, an increasing maturation of PCI. I think we should be looking at this in a similar way to how we look at vascular surgery. You know, I think we're becoming endovascular specialists. And with that, there, there are extra requirements that require us to be more diligent, perhaps, about things which are not terribly fashionable and perhaps not previously considered to be cool. In reality, we're, we're in a surgical environment. Uh, we need to be sure that we're providing a safe team and a safe structure. Um, and I think the particular thing I think that's beneficial about the WHL guideline is the preparation of the team for the day. Inevitably in PCI, a primary angioplasty comes along, we all have to change, and every plan that we've made has to be altered perhaps. But ultimately, the preparation for the day is one of the things we've certainly seen in Oxford as a benefit of the, of the briefing. And also that sort of close-out thing where you perhaps get the opportunity to reflect on what sometimes has been an extremely busy day. And I think both those elements in our practice have been beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. And that sort of touches on a, another area which you mentioned the guidelines, which is teaching and training. And, and that debriefing session at the end of the day is in a way a sort of uh, teaching and training. That's because BSIS really does have a strong history in this area. Yeah, and I think where we see BSIS increasingly is providing an important tool for teaching and training medical staff, non-medical staff, but also consultant staff and providing a structure for revalidation going forward. I think this issue about uh, continuing professional education is a really is a live one for us. And I think within British cardiology, which is essentially what BSIS serves, we need to provide an important service really to our consultant colleagues to give them the infrastructure to keep up to date. I mean, as we've discussed earlier, things are changing so quickly. And I think trying to provide digestible updates to make sure that everybody's aware of what's changed and how we can take things forward is a very, very important role of BSIS. Yeah, absolutely agree. Again, with that change in mind, at the end of the recommendations, you have an appendix, and in that appendix, you have specific standards for the treatment of left main stem disease and CTO. And of course, the techniques that we use for both those lesions have really changed again over the last five to 10 years. That's right. And I think with the left main, I think we're in a position where two very large trials have taken place, Noble and Excel. Uh, they're comparisons of PCI against uh, surgery. We look forward to the outcome of those trials, which should be available September 16 at TCT. And we might then be in a position where patients have a choice. Now, it's important then for us to remember that the trial data will reflect expert PCI practice in expert PCI centers. And I think what we have to be sure about is that we are able to apply those safety and uh, learning experiences to patients who might ultimately get left main PCI as an option in the next few years. So we've tried to be forward thinking about the guideline because we're aware that these guidelines will stand for maybe three or four years. With regard to CTO, as you know, the pace of change again there is extraordinary. And within the CTO guideline, we've really emphasized the role of CTO experts. We've emphasized the role of MDT discussion for patients who have CTO. And we're trying to make sure that patients get as much as possible complete revascularization. I think you know, another big step forward, I think, in the last couple of years has been importance of recognition of ischemia rather than angiographic atheroma. 
and mm-hmm. where perhaps in the past patients with big dominant right coronaries which were occluded, there was a temptation perhaps to be treating lesions on the left side which were easier to treat with angioplasty and perhaps in retrospect weren't causing ischemia. That's not the way forward. You know, mm-hmm. the way forward is to minimize the ischemia or abolish ischemia if possible. And the way we do that is, is by providing complete revascularization. I think that's a really important point, Adrian. Just a couple of quick things to finish with. We're very lucky here in the UK now, aren't we, that we've got a very good data collection system and we we really do look at that audit data every year. There's a good report published. How much did that help to to shape and influence guidelines like this? I think it it has. And I said, said, particularly with regard to the question about centre volume, operator volume, we've moved into an area where there's public access to operator outcomes and centre outcomes. I think where one role of the guidelines which we haven't discussed perhaps which I see is very important is providing protection for patients with regard to minimum numbers of team members within the lab Mm. and the minimum facilities that should be there in the lab with the best will in the world in the next five ten years we will be entering a phase where people are going to be trying to save costs and we need to be sure that minimum standards are kept with regard to patient safety and we don't start cutting corners and I think that some of that is to do with staff numbers, some of that's to do with ongoing training, and some of it's to do with facilities. Yeah, that's very important. The price pressure is, is always going to be there. The final question I had was just about these guidelines being obviously from the British Cardiac Intervention Society. Any sort of more universal global applicability of these? Well, it's, it, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think I would say a couple of things about that. One is these guidelines were stringently reviewed by external reviewers from the States, Okay. And the challenges in the States are different to the challenges in the UK. But many of the things that you've discussed in this interview came out of that discussion, particularly around the numbers. And many of the things that we do in the UK that we're very proud of, they want to copy. And I think my view is that quite a lot of this, which is practical guidelines for patient pathways, quite a lot of this will be applied elsewhere. I think the British intervention uh, has got a fantastic reputation going forward. We've gone from a position where perhaps we were the poor guys in Europe to a position where I think with our CCAD data collection and the publications that have come out of that, the clinical trials that have come out of the UK in the last few years, a number of really important trials have come out of the UK. And hopefully with these guidelines to supplement, you know, it, it does reflect, I think, a, a regaining of some elements of at least competitiveness of UK intervention, if not leadership. Absolutely. And I think you and many of your co-authors should receive uh, some recognition for that. And certainly thank you very much for putting together what I know is not always straightforward to put together a consensus document like this. Must have taken a lot of time, but uh, something we're very happy to publish here at heart. Thank you very much for your time, Adrian. Thank you very much, Alistair. Appreciate it.